Welcome to Faith for the Rest of Us. I'm Brandon Robertson. This is a podcast where I seek to help those who are deconstructing reconstruct a faith that works for them in the modern world by cultivating conversations with some of the leading voices in progressive spirituality, faith, and theology. On today's episode, I talk with the renowned biblical scholar Amy Jill Levine about what the Bible talks about when it talks about same-sex love and relationships. This is a witty and insightful conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. I am really grateful today to be joined by Dr. A.J. Levine, who is one of the foremost scholars of the Bible today. You've written so much about uh, so many topics that are very important to New Testament studies and the broad field of biblical scholarship. And so I'm really excited to have you here today to talk about this particular topic that has also been something you focused on for quite a long time, sexuality and gender in the scripture. So thank you so much for taking some time to be with us. Happy to be with you. So as I said, uh, you're one of the preeminent Bible scholars of our day, and you have a large body of work engaging a variety of topics. But this topic of sexuality um, and gender in scripture has been one that you've been focused on since the very beginning of your publishing, at least. Uh, And so can you talk to us a little bit about what led you to start talking about gender and sexuality in the Bible? Yeah. So I, I, I knew from a very early age that the Bible was being used by a variety of different constituencies to hurt people. Uh, it was being used to uh, produce anti-Semitic readings. It was being used uh, to promote racism, to enforce the idea that slavery is actually a good thing. Uh, and it was certainly uh, hurting people on the general field of what we would call gender and sexuality, uh, from marginalizing women's voices or women's authority to condemning anybody who wasn't just, you know, entirely straight um, and, you know, sex only within marriage, you know, a missionary position in the dark uh, for procreation only. Uh, so whatever those concerns were, I think the Bible was being used as, as a weapon Uh, And I don't find that helpful. There's an old line. I didn't invent it. But there's an old line that says the Bible should be a rock on which you stand rather than a rock thrown to do damage. Um, And I thought, well, if anybody will will train me how to read this text historically um, and uh, in terms of reception history, how it's been understood over the past couple of millennia, uh, then I want to help people use the Bible for more helpful and more compassionate reasons. And if that wasn't going to work, I was going to go to law school. Uh, but, But I managed to get a degree and a job. So I've been working on this now for um, for well over 50 years. Well, it's an incredible, like I said, body of work. And I'm so grateful that you've been contributing to this space because you're right. Um, for so many people, even today, especially within Christian context, this conversation about what the Bible says about sexuality and gender, uh, because Christianity is still dreadful on women equality uh, in many spaces, it's such a vital conversation still. And one of the things that I've noticed the more I've studied this topic in an academic setting, um, but also with various faith communities and faith leaders that I've gotten to interact with, is that I come from the evangelical world, and there's a way that we were taught to look and read the Bible um, that is actually quite new, uh, despite the fact that it is considered in those circles as the way it's always been done. And engaging how the traditional Jewish perspectives have engaged with the text, I've seen how very different people have looked at the Bible and used the Bible as a source of authority over thousands of years. 
I just wonder if you can explain a little bit or extrapolate that a little bit um, between this kind of inerrancy approach that is so common among evangelicals that views every word of the Bible as it's literally written, as eternally true and applicable to all people in all times, versus what appears to me to be largely a more nuanced approach of understanding the Bible to have multiple layers of meanings and different ways of interpreting that sometimes comes from um, the Jewish perspective. Yeah. Well, um, I have to nuance both of, of the ways you phrase those those questions. On the one hand, Christianity over the centuries has had a variety of different ways of approaching the text. Sure. Uh, part of the problem that I find within evangelical settings is the evangelicals don't know their own Christian history. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's just yeah. things just started with with the individual and, and his encounter with the text. Um, so, you know, how did St. Augustine read this stuff or uh, Thomas Aquinas or Martin Luther or John Calvin, as opposed to what does the text mean uh, between me, the individual and the text itself, as if there's no mediation. And of course, there's mediation. Another, among other things, we're reading the text in translation. And anybody who says the King James Version is the authorized version, that's the only one we need to use. Well, it was authorized by the King of England, you know, not. <laughs> <laughs> that that already should should create some problems, particularly in the U.S. continent. Um, in terms of Judaism, uh, we do have some traditions that are pretty secure, uh, but we're able better, I think, than most Christian traditions to debate within the community. Um, and the reason we're able to do that and the reason we're able to come up with multiple meanings of the text um, is because Jews are not just a faith community. We are an ethnic group, um, which means we have a sense of a common ancestry from Abraham and Sarah. We have a homeland um, which gets us into the question of why do Jews generally feel a, a connection to the land of Israel? You know, the same way that Kenyans would feel connected to Kenya or Germans would feel connected to Germany. Um, if you're part of an ethnic group or like being citizens of the United States, you can disagree and they can't throw you out. Therefore, it's easier for Jews to disagree on what a text means, although we do have um, a certain tradition, which is is pretty normative. It can be changed, but it's very, very difficult to do. Mm. So we're all stuck with this question of what does the text mean? What does it mean for us today? Uh, what did it mean back then as best as we can figure out? And how much of that stuff back then made sense back then, but doesn't make sense today? Totally. So part of the effort in biblical studies is not only, I think, to do the history, but also to figure out how the text has been interpreted over time and why some interpretations have changed over time, generally for the better. Totally. Yeah, thank you for that. That's a very clarifying um, point that I hope all young evangelicals in particular can understand that there's a, a real reason to look backwards and understand how the text has changed and been used and interpreted in various contexts. Um, so I'm going to start with a very simple question. Um, could you summarize uh, from where you sit today what the Bible generally says about the topic of homosexuality? It doesn't say anything because it doesn't use the word. Exactly. Uh, you know, and that, that does somewhat beg the question you know, of like, it looks like a duck and it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck. Even if we don't have the word duck, we can pretty much figure out what 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 is of concern here. Uh, the Bible is pretty um, heterosexually, maritally focused. Uh, you know, the first commandment is not a thou shalt not, it's a thou shalt, and that thou shalt is be fruitful and multiply. Um, and generally that requires some sort of uh, heterosexual engagement uh, because it requires sperm and egg, generally speaking. Um, but the Bible also has uh, minority voices because the Bible is not a, a one-size-fits-all model. It's an anthology written over well over a thousand years, counting using Christian terms, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
And it speaks from various different perspectives. Um, so if we look at Jesus, for example, I think if somebody went up to Jesus and said, you know, wh- what's your feeling about homosexuality? Jesus would have said, you know what? Marriage isn't even all that great. What you really need um, is, is to be focused on the kingdom of heaven. Um, so it's Jesus who pulls husbands and wives apart. I mean, this is Luke, unless you hate your father and mother and wife and kids. Well, that's not really pro-family values there. Um, or the idea that we'll become like the angels who are neither married nor given in marriage. You know, some married men given in marriage, women. And the idea is you become like angels, which means you don't have sex. You don't need to because there's no reason for reproduction. Um there's an old line about Jesus. He wanted his followers to be like little children, not to produce them. Uh, so the one miracle that you find consistently in the Old Testament um, is infertile women become pregnant. Jesus doesn't make any infertile women pregnant. Uh, to the contrary, a woman who's hemorrhaging, the, Mark's Greek text says he dries her up, um, which suggests that, okay, she's she's done bleeding. But if you're done bleeding, you're not about to conceive either. Mm. So... We have different interpretations, different emphases. The Old Testament is more in terms of procreation. The New Testament, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I wish everybody were like like I am, which is celibate. Um, and then he says, you know, because it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Well, that's not a real strong endorsement of the marital bond. You know, if you can't keep it in your toga, fine, go get married. Um, but, it, you know, if if you have to. Because he recognizes that celibacy is what we would call a spiritual gift. But he said, you know, the better way is to be celibate. So we have different ways of reading the text based on different texts and based on different time periods, based on a question of when you think the end of the world is about to come. You know, are we going to be here for a long time? In which case, get married, make babies. Um, if, If the end is coming, you know, next Tuesday, there might be some other things you'd be concerned about. Yeah. Totally. That is so helpful. And in in that conversation, you brought up this paradigm of marriage, which both Jesus talks about in the Gospels, but uh, comes from um, Genesis chapter two, primarily. When one actually reads Genesis chapter two, it's striking that the word marriage doesn't appear. uh, Mm -hmm. And there's no official um, language other than a man will cleave to his wife and the two will become one flesh and be fruitful, multiply, essentially. Um, does the Old Testament, does Genesis actually give a clear prescription anywhere for what a marriage should look like? And how, how has that been understood and interpreted throughout the years? Well, it's generally been looked at as Adam and Eve are the first married couple. And you get that even in the Jesus tradition, um, in, in discussions about divorce, right? Is it, you know, is it legal to get divorced? Well, Deuteronomy says you can get divorced, but Jesus says, you know, from the beginning, it was not so. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother. And this is the, the, the text you just quoted from Genesis chapter two and cleaves to his vice, to his wife or his woman, doesn't even say wife, um, and they become one flesh. Um, One flesh doesn't mean they're having sex, by the way. One flesh means a new family unit. Um, And that's the connection of you leave your, you leave mummy and daddy, and then you, you get together with your woman. The word in Hebrew and and Greek, the word for woman is also the same word for wife. Um, And and then you form this new family unit. You know, would you have sex? Probably. Uh, But that's not the focal point. It's this new family unit. Um, in the Old Testament, uh, marriage can be among a variety of different constituencies. I mean, you have polygyny, um, which means a man can have more than one wife. What Solomon had something like 300 wives and 700 concubines. Obviously, once you're over five, I think the numbers don't matter. Um, um, 
if we look at Jacob, he's he's married to two sisters, which actually, according to the biblical law code, is illegal, which raises some other questions here, um, as well as two concubines. And he has a bunch of kids with, with those four women um, who could all be considered wives. Um, the New Testament tends to promote monogamy um, so that marriage, Christ to the church is like the man to the woman. And you get that, say, in Ephesians chapter five. Um, but you also have this idea of celibacy. Um, and even the New Testament can be looked at in some cases as sponsoring a sense of possible polygyny. Um, there, there's a passage in, in the pastoral epistles in First Timothy about the bishop has to be the husband of one wife. You know, well, if, if you're a polygynist, it doesn't say only one wife. If you're Roman Catholic, the wife is the church. And if you're Protestant, the wife is your wife. So even then, when somebody says wife, we then have to figure out what exactly does this mean, especially given the metaphor of the church as a wife. Totally. I love this. So th there's this complexity in biblical interpretation on these texts that uh, many people just don't see because the way the church has taken these texts, it is endorsed one particular lens of reading this, and that's it. But I think so much of what your work is doing is helping to problematize the idea that there's just one simple understanding of what these texts meant in their original context and for us today, which brings us to Leviticus, everyone's favorite book when we're talking about homosexuality. Uh, and so this is a complex section of legal codes, primarily written to the Jewish people for the Jewish people. And in chapter 18, what's really interesting, and I think a lot of Christians don't read the full chapter but it's set up as these are a series of things that are being done in Egypt and Canaan, and you should not do these things uh, as the nation of Israel. Can you help us understand, first of all, what in the world uh, Leviticus 18.22 is talking about when it says a man shall not lie with man as with woman? And if at all that has anything to do with what was actually happening in Egypt and Canaan, kind of contextualizing it a bit. Yeah, well, I don't think it has anything to do with what's happening in Egypt and Canaan. Um, or anywhere else, you know, Sumeria, uh, various other places in North Africa, or what we would call the ancient Near East, um, which from our perspective is actually part of the West. But in any case, um, I don't think it has anything to do with that. Um, it's a general law code. Um, much of the book of Leviticus is determining what constitutes holiness. Um, you can see this. I mean, the two so-called homosexual passages or clobber passages are in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20. Uh, in between is Leviticus 19, which gives us, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and you shall love the, the migrant who dwells among you, or the resident alien, whatever you want to call this non-native person, um, because you were non-native in the land of Egypt. Um, so what Leviticus is trying to do is establish holiness, and it does so um, by setting up categories you know, so this is profane. Profane doesn't mean bad. It just doesn't. It's like profane is the work week. Profane is Monday through Friday. Um, and then holy, if you're Jewish, is Saturday. And if you're Christian, it's Sunday. It doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with Wednesday. It just means that there's a certain thing that's set aside. Hmm. So what Leviticus is doing is setting up categories. It doesn't say when it says you male person, it doesn't even say man, like you male person uh, shall not lie with or sleep with. Uh, a man, the lyings of a woman. In other words, don't treat a man uh, like you would treat a woman if you're having sex. That's basically what it means. Part of our problem is if, if the text had simply said, to be blunt here, don't put your penis in the following places, then we would know what it was talking about. It doesn't say that. Um, so now we're already interpreting or extrapolating. And if we're not exactly sure what a text means, then I find it very problematic to say, let's make a law for all time and all places saying this is what we're going to do. Um, so the question is, it probably means 
um, you male persons, this is addressed to men, um, you male person do not treat your um, another man in the same way sexually you would treat a woman. So what does that mean? It probably has something to do with penetration. So men are the penetrators and women are the penetrates. Okay. Or as some people would put it, men are the active partners and women are the passive partners. But as a woman, I have to say, I don't believe in passivity, but that's another question. Um, so uh, why? It doesn't say because that's what Canaanites do or that's what Egyptians do, because Egyptians are also engaging in heterosexual you know, intercourse. And that's how they wind up with little Canaanites and little Egyptians. So it can't be that. Um, and there's no evidence that people in Canaan or people in Egypt are engaging in, in rampant homosexual practice. I mean, nor would they simply because of how human nature functions, um, where you're dealing with primarily a minor, minoritized population. Um, so what's it doing there? Um, and now we have to we have to guess because it's a law code that says don't do this, but it doesn't say why not. Um, so here are some of the explanations that I think are unhelpful. First of all, I don't think it has anything to do with what the neighbors are doing. Um, second, I don't think it has anything to do with keeping the population up, right? Don't have, don't have homosexual intercourse because then you won't make babies. No, um, this is how we get gay dads, right? Um, so you can be, um, again, we're just speaking to, to males here. Um, you can be a man and still engage in heterosexual intercourse and still produce children. Um, you know, it, it, and if you then want to have a gay partner on the side, that's fine. You just be tired. Um, nor because the majority of people are heterosexually inclined rather than homosexual, homosexually inclined. It's, it's not going to screw up the population. You get enough straight men running around doing straight male things. Um, I don't think it has anything to do with questions of violence. Um, it may um, have something to do, and this strikes me as most likely, um, it, and I don't think, oh, by the way, I don't think it has anything to do with um, non-procreative sex, because there's nothing in the Old Testament that bans masturbation. Um, so if they wanted to do away with, you know, any sex that's not going to lead to procreation, then you would ban masturbation. Um, you would ban any sort of male-female relations that aren't going to lead to procreation. I mean, use your imagination as to what those might be. Um, you would ban sex with a very pregnant woman because she's not going to get pregnant again. Um, you know, if you're in your six months, you're not going to conceive yet another fetus. Um, so it doesn't have anything to do with keeping the population up. What it probably has to do with is taxonomy or categorization, right? In the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, but in the New as well, uh, men do men things and women do women things. Uh, so this is what we would call gender roles. Uh, men, men, men barbecue and women bake for the moderns. It's, you know, in, in, in the West, men wear pants and women wear skirts, you know, except when they don't. Um, uh, men do penetrating and women are the penetratees. So if you treat a man as if he's a woman, which is literally what the text says, yeah. don't lie with a man, the lines of a woman, it means you're placing a man in the woman's role. Um, and that, screws up taxonomy because it's screwing up what it means to talk about male and female. Um, and that would fit along with laws in Deuteronomy about men can't wear women's clothes and women can't wear men's clothes or the idea that you can't plant a field with two types of crops, right? Uh, because you don't want to get things mixed up. Hmm. That's part of the broader biblical view. Um, just think about the beginning of Genesis, uh, chapter one, where you separate the waters above from the waters below, and you separate the dry land from the water, um, and you separate uh, uh, 
uh, human beings from the rest of creation. And you separate the Sabbath from the work week. And that separation gives you a sense of holiness. So it's in effect, it's sort of like staying in your own lane. Mm. I think that's what's going on here. And that would make sense given how people looked at uh, sexuality and gender in most of the ancient Near East. And it's also how people looked at sexuality and gender uh, in the Greek and Roman worlds, which give us the basis for the New Testament itself. Totally. If we think today that, you know, women can do whatever men can do, um, then we might want to call this particular law into question. Totally. Totally. And I want to drill down on one uh, point that you brought up, because in the field of affirming theology, one of the arguments I've seen quite frequently in recent days is about the idea of procreation as one excuse for why Leviticus doesn't apply and why it's condemning that. Talk to me a little bit about, so there's this common notion that there's this sin of Onan, uh, of spilling his seed on the floor, and that's somehow a condemnation of masturbation and the idea that the ancient Israelites people were this small fledgling tribe. And so they were very concerned with procreation. Why, why isn't that an argument for Leviticus 18.22 wasting semen um, from your perspective? Right. Um, so the idea of Onanism comes from this fellow whose name is Onan, who shows up in Genesis chapter 38. Um, there's a woman named Tamar uh, who is married to Abraham's great grandson. Um, and this first guy she's married to does something horrible and God kills him. It's one of those one-offs that's really kind of, we don't know what he did, but it had to be pretty bad. Um, and there's a system uh, in the Old Testament. It also shows up in the New Testament when some Sadducees talk to Jesus about a woman who's been married to seven brothers. Mm-hmm. It's a system known as leveret marriage. A lever in Latin is a brother-in-law. And the ancient system was if you are, you, the woman, the wife, your husband dies and you don't have a kid, now what? You know, who's going to inherit the dead husband's name and estate? Who's going to protect you? So the idea was you would marry your brother-in-law um, and you and your brother-in-law would have sexual relations. And the child that you and the brother-in-law conceive uh, then inherits the dead husband's name and estate. Okay. So the brother of this guy Tamar's married to is named Onan. Uh, and Onan is now married to Tamar under this leverage system. Every with me so far? Yep. Okay. So um, Onan does not want Tamar to have a baby. Why? Because if she does, then that kid is going to inherit a double portion that could have gone to Onan and his kids. Hmm. So his view is, okay, I'll marry her because I have to, but I really don't want to get her pregnant. I don't want to have that opportunity. So the text says Onan uh, spilled his seed upon the ground, which probably means uh, he had intercourse with Tamar and then withdrew and ejaculated outside of her. Um, and God sees this to be unhelpful because he's not fulfilling his leverage responsibility. And then Onian dies. Hmm. And then the story goes on. Tamar, by the way, is the first woman mentioned in the New Testament in the Gospel of Matthew, which is just kind of cool for Tamar. Anyway, um, so this idea then becomes associated with masturbation, which is not what he was doing. He was practicing a very um, inexact form of birth control. So folks out there, if you're if you're listening, you know, if you think pulling out before you ejaculate is going to preserve your female partner from getting pregnant, not necessarily not a good way of engaging in birth control. So just say this is a mother of two kids. Um, just like, pay attention. Um, so it's not, it's actually not condemning masturbation. Um, the first commandment is be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Well, that was taken care of uh, in Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel. 
Um, when languages are confused and people are spread out on the earth, the earth is already filled. Um, you can have, if you look at somebody like Jacob, um, who has who has twelve sons and at least two daughters. I mean, one guy can can do a fair amount in terms of repopulating the earth, even if you have some people who are celibate or gay who aren't interested in that type of repopulating. Um, so I don't think it's a matter of let's forbid homosexual relations because otherwise the, the earth is not going to get repopulated. It's not the case. Um, uh, do we need to repopulate the earth today? We have population explosion um, and we have kids who are being born uh, where there's not enough food, depending upon where they live in the world, where there's not enough food to feed them. Hmm. Um, and maternal health is in danger if the woman is having 15, 16 kids. I mean, that's, that's really not great for her. Um, so be fruitful and multiply has its place. But is that a place where we need to be in 2023 or 2024? Hmm. Great point. We need more queer people because we need less babies. I hear you loud and clear. No. Queer people uh, can have babies. Don't don't sell that part short. Sure. Yes. So with this framework, we come to the New Testament, which again, for Christians, the Apostle Paul is the kind of boogeyman of anti-gay stuff. Um, and Paul's coming from a background where he's inheriting this worldview that we've just articulated. And in the book of Romans, he's writing um, two Gentile people, uh, describing the descent of their culture, their world, because of idolatry. And he says, essentially, because of this idolatry, God's given you over to these unnatural lusts, men exchanging natural relations, women exchanging natural relations. What in the world is Paul talking about there, um, in, especially around the language of natural and unnatural? And how does that relate to pagan idolatry? Yeah, well... <laughs> good question because the fact is we actually don't know what Paul is talking about. Um, again, it's it's like looking at Leviticus. We look at the words and it doesn't say don't do X. It gives you metaphors and metaphors are always problematic. So Paul talks about what he calls natural use and unnatural. It's like natural use of women, which strikes me as kind of icky um, and unnatural. Katafusin according to nature and parafusin against nature. The problem is, again, he doesn't say what exactly he means. And if you look at the early commentators on the epistle to the Romans, we're in Romans chapter one here. Um, the early commentators, people like St. Augustine, um, think this has to do with anal intercourse. So unnatural intercourse is non-procreative intercourse, um, which can be done with a variety of different partners. Um, so, you know, as Paul saying, don't engage in any sort of intercourse except that which is likely to lead to procreation. And that would fit within a broader Roman worldview. I mean, the, the Roman Stoic view, the, the elite Roman view is um, you want to discipline the body. And if you're having sex just for the fun of it, that's not a form of discipline. That's a form of indulgence. So you mm. don't want to do that. And if you're having sex, that's no way going to lead to procreation. That's again, highly indulgent and a sign of being out of control. So is Paul talking about homosexuality? Uh, possibly. But Paul could also be talking about non-procreative intercourse. Um, another part of our problem in reading Paul is when, or reading the Bible in general, is today when we read the Bible, we read it with chapters and verses. Um, and back then there weren't any, there wasn't even any punctuation. So we don't have chapters and verses. Um, and if you get to the end of Romans chapter one, which is the, one of the so-called clobber passages, and you get to the beginning of chapter two, Paul goes on to say, why are you judging? You know, that's not your job. Um, 
So if we read Romans 1 in light of Romans 2 and forget about the chapter division, um, it does put, I think, a helpful break on people who say, oh, you're doing X, Y, and Z. No, Um, it's really, what are you saying? You know, you've got your own work to take care of. You've got your own problems you need to address. Um, So is Paul talking about unnatural intercourse in the sense of lesbianism? It's possible because Paul here mentions women exchanging uh, natural for unnatural. But that could also be women saying, you know, I don't I really don't want to have a child um, because that for for a number of women, that could mean that's a death sentence. Women die in childbirth a lot uh, prior to modern medicine and even after. So it could be lesbianism. It could be male homosexual relations, but it could also be non-procreative intercourse in a variety of different ways. We don't know. I love it. I love it. And it gets even more mysterious, uh, the don't know question, when you turn over to Paul in 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy, because he introduces a word that some scholars would suggest he invented. Some scholars would just say it was not very popular and certainly not in literature that we have prior to Paul writing it. Um, in first Corinthians, he introduces this word arsenokoitai. And it appears to be, um, coming from the book of Leviticus, the Greek Septuagint. Um, but again, it's listed in a very interesting way in first Corinthians as a condemnation. It's next to a word called malakoi, which Mm -hmm. itself is fraught with interpretive issues. And it's in a list, um, that seems to either be related to economic sins or perhaps prostitution uh, based on the context of first Corinthians. How do you read what Paul's talking about when he says arsenokoitai and malakoi? Yeah. Um, you, you find the same word um, arsenokoitai also in first Timothy. And for that, um, I think you've got a better case for arguing about economics. And so what Paul's doing in first Corinthians, just giving you a basic vice list. Um, so you, you, Chuck the um, the so-called sexual sins together. Uh, the first term is pornoi. It's where we get words like pornography. Um, it's usually translated fornication, but then you've got to figure out what that means. Um, is it sex outside of marriage? Is it non-procreative sex? You know, is it just general sex outside of sex designed to produce children in a marital context? Which, by the way, would leave out everybody who's enslaved because if you're enslaved, you can't get married. Um, uh, we have the same problem today. Um, people may not recall, I mean, we're, we in the United States, we're pretty awful on our own history, but there, there was a president named Bill Clinton um, who had a relationship with this woman named Monica Lewinsky, who was not Mrs. Clinton. Um, and when Clinton, when this was discovered, Clinton's comment was, I did not have sex with this woman, which means he did not have penile penetration and oral sex. You know, that would, that's sex to me. Um would it have been sex to the Old Testament? Well, they don't really talk about it, so we don't know. Um, so even when we talk about fornication, that's going to have different connotations to different people, but probably means inappropriate sexual relations. Okay. Um, now we have malakoi. And so a, a malakos person is a soft person. I would think couch potato. A malakos person um, is a person who spends more time in the harem um, or with concubines or in a brothel than in the gymnasium, in the gymnasium, you know, training for physical strength. Um, or in modern terms, you know, somebody who would take the escalator rather than take the stairs. Um, uh, it's a soft person. Um, does it mean effeminate? Well, some translations actually read effeminate for malakos, but it really means a soft person. Okay. Um, not necessarily gay and not necessarily effeminate the way we would think of effeminate stuff. Um, and then we have arsenokatoi. 
Okay. Arson means male. Like in Genesis, male and female, he had created them. That's arson, kaithelu, male and female. Kotoi is where we get the word coitus, um, which means to have sexual relations. really means bed. Uh, so a male better. All right. What is that? You are absolutely correct. The first time we have this word in Greek literature is from Paul. So it could have been a term that Paul coined. Did he pick it up and just nobody ever bothered to write it down before? It's possible, but that's a weird thing to think about. Um, what does it mean? Does it mean somebody who beds other men? Well, yeah, but Paul has, there are words for that. Um, does it mean somebody who facilitates uh, sexual relations like a, a pimp hmm. uh, or a brothel keeper? could also mean that. Um, so it probably, again, it's just probably, it probably means men who sleep with other men, but we're, we are in fact not sure. Hmm. Now you want to make a law on something where which we're actually not sure? I mean, I'm okay with making a law against pimping, right? Or And if, and if you want to have something like that, like legalized prostitution, then do it in such a way that there's health care provided and insurance and, and safety for the people who are working in, these, in, these, in, in the sex industry. Uh, but that's not the same thing as forbidding homosexual relations, between, particularly between consenting adults. Oh, speaking of which, um, a number of people will look at these passages in Romans um, or in 1 Corinthians or in 1 Timothy and say what Paul's really talking about is pederasty. Um, uh, because in the first century, uh, the idea was if you were a free male person, okay, so not enslaved and male, uh, you could pretty much, culturally speaking, in, in the Roman world, have sex with any woman, as long as she's not married to somebody else. You can't have sex with somebody else's wife. Um, a prostitute, male or female. An enslaved person, male or female. A war captive, male or female. You just, you, male person, you just could not have sex, culturally speaking, with somebody who was of your same station in life. Hmm. And that goes back to this idea of Leviticus, that you don't want to put another male in your same social position in the position of a woman, because that's sort of sliding down the scale with men up on top and women down here, and then this kind of, you know, material in between. Um, I don't think that's what's going on here either. And I don't think Paul is talking about um, pederasty. It could have been, but I don't think so. Yeah. Just a little bit more on that. I mean, you have touched on this, but one of the common prevailing affirming arguments it goes back to exactly what you were just mentioning. In the Greco-Roman world, there is this very um, rigid, what some scholars have called penetration grid about men as you just said, being able to have sex with virtually anybody other than people who are at the same level. It, I agree that pederasty, it's hard to prove how common it was. It's hard to prove that Paul is talking about that at all. Could Would you agree with the affirming uh, arguments that Arsenal Quartet could be read as just that condemnation of men that are having exploitative sex with anyone who's lower than them that is of the same gender uh, or anyone that's of their same level that's the same gender? Um, that's what I mean. Um, well, if, if you have two consenting people, then it's not exploitative. Um, yeah. And if you have two people, who one of whom is not consenting, we would call that rape. Um, I, that's, I don't think that's what Paul is talking about, um, because Paul doesn't seem to be talking about violence. And Paul seems to be talking about people who are generally having a good time in, with this type of relationship. So it could be. We are not sure. Something else that we might want to consider is the type of the type of sexual relations that people would have. So a lot of the the so-called pederasty or man-boy relationships, um, that's actually not penetration. It's it's usually intercural. 
Um, so it's it's basically uh, the the penetrator penetrate the young boy usually between fourteen and seventeen. Um, it's between his thighs. Um, so it's not a it's not a direct penetration into the body, and with that we would consider that a kind of general form of masturbation. Um, so even there, we have to figure out what exactly is being condemned. Simply don't know. Totally. Um, exploitative, yes, uh, probably in First Timothy, um, where you have uh, pornoi, and you have arsenokatoi, and then you have this other word that means kidnappers. Mm-hmm. Um, so here, the pornoi could be the fornication outside of marriage. Uh, the arsenokatoi could be the uh, either the brothel owner or the pimp, or in fact a male who's engaged in, in some form of sexual intercourse with another man. And then the kidnapper. Well, who would the kidnapper be? Um, people who land in brothels, uh, people who we would call them pimped out, um, frequently war captives um, or kidnap victims. Um, today we would call that sex trafficking. Um, and what is Paul or the person writing in Paul's name here in First Timothy condemning is perhaps that type of exploitative sexuality. Totally. So it's possible that we've got exploitative concerns in First Timothy and, and in Romans, but I'm not seeing in, in First Corinthians and Romans. I'm not seeing it, but that doesn't mean it's not there. Totally. And a question based on the word porno that you brought up, because this is another interesting conversation, is it has been translated into older English translations, at least, as fornication. But the actual Greek is a little bit more ambiguous from my understanding about what exactly that was referring to. Is it your understanding that pornoi and porneia and all of that is pointing to um, fornication exclusively? Or some scholars would say it's more of a a junk drawer for all sorts of sexual sins. Um, Yeah, so is the English term fornication. Yeah. (laughs) So what what did you think I had sex with that woman. Here's Mr. Clinton, right? Does kissing count? Um, does showing your ankle count? Um, does does streaking count um, or flashing? Um, it, it's a, it is a catch-all term, but it usually has something to do with, generally speaking, um, it has something to do with some form of sexual expression. Totally. Okay, we're coming to the last clobber passage, and it takes us also back to the Hebrew Bible, but we have Jude uh, that takes us to um, Genesis 19 and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, which this one is perplexing to me, and I think most people who read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, because it's clearly not just about gay sex, if about gay sex at all, and Jude uses this strange phrase, um, strange flesh. Um, Mm -hmm. What is Jude talking about? What is Sodom and Gomorrah about from your perspective? Yeah, Sodom and Gomorrah is about rape. Um, so, and part of our problem here is the Bible doesn't have a word for rape. Mm-hmm. Now, that's kind of like the duck analogy. If it looks like a duck and it walks like a duck. If it looks like sexual violation with an unwilling partner, that's rape. Um, so in Genesis chapter 19, uh, Abraham's nephew, um, whose name is Lot, has moved to the city of Sodom, which um, is kind of a rich area. Um and he has a wife uh, from the Sodomite people, and he has two virgin daughters, and they have two fiancés. Uh, they become hosts to two people who seem to be angels, who had just, in the previous chapter, visited Abraham and his wife, Sarah, and predicted that she would have a child. And then they head off to Sodom. Um, and while they're there, the people in Sodom, from the eldest to the youngest, and this would include women, by the way, so this is not just male-male issue, uh, bang on Lot's door, in effect, and say, take out the, the, these strangers, these visitors, so that we may know them. 
Um, and this is like knowing in the biblical sense. The Hebrew word is yada. Um, and it can mean to know something, but it can also mean knowing in the sexual sense. And Adam and Eve, and the man knew his woman, and she conceived, and she bore a child. So apparently what they want to do is have sexual relations with these strangers. Um, and Lot's not particularly interested. In fact, Lot actually says, here are my two virgin daughters. Why don't you take them? Um, which strikes me as not a good form of parenting. Um, and the Sodomites all say, no, 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 throw out, throw out these men. So anyway, the people in Sodom become blind. Lot and, and the daughters-in-law, the two daughters and the wife escape. The wife looks back, gets turned into a pillar of salt. Um, and then following on in Genesis 19, the daughters in subsequent evenings get their, they think they're the only people left in the world, like nuclear wars just happen because Sodom goes up in flames. Um, so on successive evenings, they get their dad drunk and then sleep with him. Okay. Also not a good idea. Um, so what's this strange flesh? Um, it's human uh, angelic intercourse. And in the first century, at the time that the book of Judah is being written, this, this was actually kind of on the books. Um, it, at the beginning of Genesis 6, right before the Noah's Ark story, before the flood story, um, there's this reference to these people called the Bene Elim, the sons of God. That's literally what the term means. Sons of God who see the daughters of men are very beautiful and they have sex with them and they produce a race of giants. I think about like the, from Greek mythology, the demigods like Hercules or Perseus or Theseus or like the Titans. Um, and this is looked at as not good. Why? Because it's that same sort of category confusion. Mm -hmm. So men don't sleep with men. Women don't sleep with women. People don't sleep with animals. Right? That's also part of that Levitical law code. You can't, you can't engage in bestiality. Um, and humans don't sleep with divine beings, right? That stay in your own lane. So that's probably what's going on in Jude. Um, there may be some hints of that, even in 1 Corinthians, where Paul talks about when women uh, prophesy they should keep their heads covered because of the angels, right? Mm -hmm. uh, why? Because the angels are watching these early Jesus followers praying, and you don't want the angels looking too closely because, oh, my heavens, you know, what would happen? Um in the first century, um, starting in about the third century BCE, the third century before Jesus, so the 200s, um, there's this idea of these angels called watchers. And what they did, they watched a little bit too closely. We would call them fallen angels. And the watchers are responsible for teaching human beings how to make munitions, right? Arts of war. Uh, they teach you about cosmetics because, you know, if you put on lipstick or, you know, uh, eye, eye, eyebrow pencil or something, then, then you're not being natural. Um, and they also teach us the art of writing, because once you write, you lose that personal connection. And mm -hmm. writing can always be misinterpreted because you don't know what the tone is. You can't read the body language. You don't know what the context is. Um, so there's this concern about these fallen angels who were there trying to have sex with women. Um, and if, if even that sounds weird, um, in the Old Testament Apocrypha, the Deuterocanonical literature, which is stuff Protestants don't read, uh, but it's in the Catholic canon and the Eastern Orthodox canon, there's a book called the Book of Tobit. And in the book of Tobit, um, there's this woman whose name is Sarah. She's beautiful. And every night uh, she's been married seven times. And each night where she's trying to consummate the relationship, uh, a demon comes and kills her husband and tries to have sex with her. People thought about that stuff back then. So what's this strange flesh? You really don't want to have sex with a supernatural being because that destroys the fabric of the cosmos. Hmm. So we condemn sex with angels. I agree. That sounds like a great interpretation. Uh, and, it could be fun. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? <laughs> what, what I really love. I had the opportunity, so I, I, I can't tell you. But yeah. Oh. 
I think the the thing that you've helped us see very clearly, one is that the culture and context of the ancient world is so very different than the one that we're living in. And so to try to just read plainly these texts with our modern lenses is bound to lead to misinterpretations. And there is so much ambiguity in the biblical text, despite the fact that um, so many Christians want the Bible to be the clear guidebook for every aspect of our lives. It's simply not that. It has never been that. And it's uh, because of the time between us and the writers of scripture, there's a lot we can't know and will never know. Um, And so from that foundation, the last thing I want to ask is the person who's watching this is likely an LGBT person who's in a Christian context or a parent of an LGBT child in a Christian context. They've heard all of this. They're still struggling a little bit. As a biblical scholar, what's a word that you would give to an LGBT Christian trying to reconcile their faith and sexuality or people who want to support LGBT Christians but feel bound by the Bible? Yeah, allies are really important here. Um, To read the Bible faithfully does not mean that you have to read it literally, because we can't. We have to determine what's hyperbole. You know, Jesus says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. Christians generally aren't working around with with eye patches or prosthetic devices. Um, Both Testaments have have a clear sense of what's important and what's not important. Jesus, uh, in Matthew 23, talks about the weightier commandments, because there are major commandments and there were minor commandments. You know, major commandment, don't commit murder. Minor commandment, don't speed, right? Um, The major commandments, love God, love neighbor, uh, do to others as you would have them do to you. Um, and that doesn't mean that's all you have to do. It means you have to treat them with kindness and compassion to recognize that everybody is in the image and likeness of God, which means that if, if you are a queer kid, you should be able to strip naked, stand in front of a full length mirror and say, this is the image and likeness of God. Um, mm-hmm. And if you think that you're in the wrong body, you should be able to say, this is what the image of God should be because mm-hmm. I'm not seeing it here and be able to recognize that and claim it for yourself. Um Read widely and don't just read people who already agree with you because that's not helpful and and existing in echo chambers is not good. Um, Recognize that the Bible is historically contingent as as any law code is or the, you know, the, the, the Constitution and the amendments. They're all historically contingent. Um, Speak to people who might be helpful in terms of pastoral care. And if you're finding you're not getting the answers that you need, um, think, think hard about what answers you're getting, but then look to other people. You can always write to me um, and other folks who are interested in uh, having a more abundant life, um, which is what Jesus calls people to his life abundant uh, for people who are feeling that they're being marginalized or ostracized because of their, their sexual or gendered identity. Um, And if somebody says, you know what, what you're doing is unnatural. Two points. One, When Paul talks about nature, he's usually talking about culture, which is what most of us do. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, you know, nature teaches you that women have long hair and men have short hair. Well, no, it doesn't. Um, If you just go to the zoo and, you you know, look at the lion, right? The lion's the one with the longer hair. The peacock, please. Um, uh, Later on in the epistle to the Romans, in Romans chapter 11, Paul talks about how Gentiles, how pagans get into the the family of Israel, into the family of Abraham. And he talks about how they're grafted onto this olive tree, contrary to nature. It's exactly the same term that's being used back in in Romans chapter 1. The only way that Gentiles can gain salvation is by an act that's contrary to nature. Um, and for all those folks who say, no, if you want to, if you're acting in this particular way, or if you feel that you need this type of surgery, that's contrary to nature. I, I would note that it is contrary to nature to open up a womb and operate on a fetus, but we can do that. And then the fetus has a better quality of life 
Mm. Right. That's contrary to nature. Thank God we can do something like that. So again, we have to determine what do we mean by nature? What do we mean by culture? And what do we mean by the idea that we're all in the image and likeness of God? And, and how, do we, how do we practice that? And how do we recognize that in a more fulsome way? Taking into, into account everything that God has given us, which includes science and sociology and psychology and pastoral care and compassion. Hmm. Wow. Dr. Amy Jo Levine, thank you so much for your work on this uh, over the course of your career and your continued advocacy um, for the queer community. And this conversation I know is going to be so eye-opening for so many people. So I really appreciate you taking some time to chat with us today. Happy to do it. It's a very important topic. So thank you for facilitating. Thanks for listening to this episode of Faith for the Rest of Us. If you enjoyed today's conversation, would you do me a favor and head over to Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave us a rating? And if you really enjoy this content, would you head over to patreon.com slash Brandon Robertson and become a patron today? For as little as $5 a month, you can gain access to behind-the-scenes content from this podcast and from my work all across the internet. Thanks so much in advance for your support of this show, and I look forward to seeing you next time on Faith for the Rest of Us.